seems that the news cycle has not really slowed down at least for a year and a half, two years, especially the last week or two as the large earthquake in Haiti and the unfolding events in Afghanistan where much of the world is turning their eyes to as there's constant news coverage of the scenes unfolding there. I wonder about you this week as you've watched scenes, if you've heard stories about the unfolding events in Afghanistan, I wonder what kind of reaction it's caused in your own heart. I, I wonder how many of us have felt anger. And where has that anger been directed? Has it been directed at the, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or this new branch of ISIS? Maybe, maybe you have anger at President Biden and his administration. Maybe you have anger at President Trump and his dealings with Afghanistan, or President Obama, or President Bush. Maybe you even have anger at God. And if you don't have anger at God, I wonder in moments like this, if you start to question, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, can't you stop this? These questions uh, have been rolling in my mind as I've been thinking about the good work in the missionary task that's been done in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. And seemingly a lot of it being quenched right now. Brothers and sisters, that can cause me to lose heart. So I got an email this morning. Uh, two, three hours ago from a friend who knows a lot of Afghani believers. This friend has worked with them, seen many of them come to Christ, and seen many of them go from his country back into the country of Afghanistan. And this is what his email said as he emailed uh, some of his, uh, some people he knows in order for us to pray for them. He says, brothers, I'm going to ask you to boldly petition God today to rescue a group of Afghan brothers and sisters who are a priority for the U.S. government. But time is running out. Pray for the Lord to protect them, to open doors, and to make a way for them to get out of Afghanistan. Pray for the Lord to provide what is humanly impossible. Their trust in the Lord is strong. They have said clearly they have accepted that they might die, but they are trusting Jesus. What faith they have shown. Please pray for the Lord to hear, to see, to act, for they bear his name. Thankful for all you and your care and concern. From heavy situations like that where Christians, if caught under evil governments such as the Taliban, will likely be tortured and killed, at best imprisoned, often forced to recant their faith in Christ. From those extreme situations to even strained relationships with family and friends, the temptation for the Christian... Indeed, for anyone, is to lose heart. You see, we don't have that same temptation 
to lose heart when our sports team doesn't seem to be performing well. So if you are a a KU football fan at this point, you clearly haven't lost heart because you're still a fan. I grew up a Duke football fan. Same thing applies. But when we love people so deeply, when we care about them and we want them to understand the immeasurable riches of Jesus Christ, when we love them even in very difficult ways, when that love leads to suffering, church, that will tempt you to lose heart. And the instructions from God in such situations are clear and simple. And they're found in our text today. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. You can open to there with your own Bible if you brought one, or on your phone. Or you can look at the Pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Lord, help us now as we search these immeasurable riches of Christ. Help us not to lose heart. Give us boldness and confidence for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Church, do not lose heart when you experience or witness gospel suffering. That is what Paul is wanting us to That is what Paul's wanting the Ephesian church to know. That is what God is wanting us to know today. Do not lose heart when you experience and witness 
gospel suffering. Uh, Our sermon has four points today. Point one is to know Paul's suffering. So we're going through this. Four things to know so you aren't disheartened when you see and experience suffering for the gospel. Just a quick clarification there. There are, are many types of suffering. God cares about them all. But in this particular passage, we'll be looking at suffering that springboards from gospel proclamation or gospel living. So not the kind of suffering particularly that you get if you uh, have an illness or, or something unrelated to the gospel comes your way. There's many great places in the Bible for God's comfort and understanding in those situations. But this one has a more particular focus. Four things to know so you aren't disheartened when you see and experience suffering for the gospel. First thing to know is know Paul's suffering for Christ. Verses 1 to 3. Know Paul's suffering for Christ. In verse 1, Paul says that for this reason... Paul, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for Christ Jesus. He's making it clear to us that he's imprisoned for claiming that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he's imprisoned not just for believing that, but after believing that, for proclaiming that. For making that known to the Gentiles, to the nations. Uh, Paul, at this point, is probably in Rome, imprisoned in a jail cell, or perhaps he's under house arrest. Paul knows the cost of following Jesus. He knows also that he's an undeserving ambassador for Christ after he so heavily has persecuted the church in his past. So flip over a few pages, look at Acts chapter 9. We've done this once in Ephesians. It's it's worthy to do it again since Paul brings it up again. Look at Acts chapter 9 verse 1. We see... The events of Saul, persecutor of the church, being confronted by the Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul is referring to, I think, in verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 3. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, and if you're new to the scriptures, that's Paul's name before he was converted. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So church, just notice as we were going to read a a bit more of Acts chapter 9, but just notice that Paul is going to the leaders of the synagogues and he's asking for those Christians who belong to the way. He's wanting some kind of official record of those who have signed up or maybe it's a modern way of saying in many Muslim countries, you can change your identity card to Christian. There are brothers and sisters in Turkey that have done that, that I know, brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that have done that. It's a big step for a lot of, for many people who have a Muslim background to change their official state identity to Christian, so to Christianity. So in some way that's going on here. And Paul, 
who eventually will be imprisoned for the gospel himself, is now in divine ironic providence trying to imprison those who are followers of the way of Jesus Christ. And then suddenly a light shone around him. He hears the voice of the Lord Jesus and notice what Jesus says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus has been crucified. He rose from the dead three days later. And then 40 days later, he ascended to heaven. But as we've said earlier, Jesus is so tied. Jesus so loves, so cares for his church that he identifies them with himself. So when you persecute an Afghanistan believer, you're persecuting Jesus. When you're persecuting a believer in Israel 2,000 years ago, you're persecuting Jesus. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Then look down to, to verse 13. Ananias, the high priest, one of the high... Uh, Ananias, high priest, is, is talking to the Lord, and the Lord says to him, I have heard, or he says to the Lord, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus is foretelling us, the reader, that Paul is going to suffer for the name of Jesus. Go back to Ephesians now. So in Ephesians 3, now in verse 2, Paul is reiterating his role in the expansion of the mystery of the gospel. Years have passed since this time of Paul being a persecutor of a church. Now he's imprisoned and he's reminding this church in order to comfort them to know his particular role in the expansion of the gospel. He has an important role to play. Uh, this role of Paul's was not of his own imagination, but it was God himself. Uh, verse two says that Paul, he says, I'm stewarding God's grace to you, Ephesians. Uh, that word steward there is translated in the NIV and the CSB versions as administration. It has the same root word as we saw in chapter 2 of household. And so Paul is saying that, that God is in his unfolding, as God is unfolding his plan for the universe, Paul's role is to deliver to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the grace of God. So on the, on the blueprints of God's plan of redemption, God has raised up this once persecutor of the church. And now he has declared that you have a prominent role to play in the church. And Paul knows he's undeserving of this. In verse 8, he says, I am the very least of all the holy ones. I am the very least of all the saints. See, that's why I changed this point. I, I initially had it to uh, know, that, uh, know, suffer, know that you would suffer for Christ. But Paul actually has a very important, specific role that, to play in the unfolding of God's plan. 
Uh, he really hammers it home in the book of Galatians. But also we see here, here in Ephesians as he tells the Ephesian church that, Paul, that Christ is building his church upon himself, the cornerstone, the prophets, and the apostles. And then he's equipping the saints further for the work of the ministry by giving them uh, teachers and evangelists and shepherds. But don't skip over Paul's unique role as an apostle here. See, God is making a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is, in 1 Corinthians 4, says that we are regarded as servants of Christ and stewards or administrators of God's unfolding mystery. So when you are tempted to lose heart... When you see that Afghanistan brothers and sisters, apart from the intervening hand of God, will likely die. When you're tempted to lose heart, when your friend is pushed back on you or your friend has disowned you for gospel purposes. Paul wants you to know his role. Know that before you, before the Christians of this generation, 2,000 years ago, there was a holy apostle set apart for God's purposes. And God called him to declare the gospel of grace among the nations. And he suffered for it. Brother and sister, don't lose heart. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, who suffered first of the apostle Paul. Of the other 12, Christian history says we're all martyred for their faith. And hundreds of years of Christians who have suffered and seen Christ as worth suffering for. Well, secondly, Paul moves in verses 4 to 7 to explaining the mystery of Christ. So if you don't want to be disheartened as you watch the news, secondly, know the mystery of Christ. Know the suffering of the Apostle Paul. Secondly, know the mystery of Christ. He's already mentioned the mystery in chapter 1, verse 9, saying that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then as you go through Ephesians, you hit chapter 2. In the second half of chapter 2, he explains that both that the Jew and the Gentile are one under Christ. And that God is building himself up. One church, one people of a variety of nations, all founded on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the foundations of the apostles and prophets. He's he's described how God is building his church in this way. And so what is a mystery in the Bible? As said earlier, a mystery in the Bible is not like a secret or not like a Scooby-Doo cartoon where you need to figure out who the boogeyman is. A mystery in the Bible is something that's always been there, but in some ways it's been a secret. It's been a truth that is concealed and then later is revealed. So it's not like a jigsaw puzzle. It's been something that has been concealed and then later revealed. It's not like one of my my favorite hymns written by William Cooper, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's a different kind of mystery. That's, That's saying that God is providentially doing things that we can't quite see. 
The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. We don't know when that flower will bloom. We don't know how all the sufferings and trials of this life will unfold to be sweet. It's not the kind of mystery that he's talking about here. He's talking about something much more specific. And he explains it in verse 4. Verses 4 to 7. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul's saying that because you have had hearts that have been enlightened, you know that what I'm writing is accurate as it pertains to this mystery, that Jesus is the Christ. You know what I'm saying is true, and you know that it's not my own invention, but it's been revealed to me on the road to Damascus. That's what verse 5 says, that it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The apostles and prophets are part of this foundation of the church. Their role and authority is vitally important. The apostles are the primary witnesses to the early gospel events. And as one theologian said, the prophets here represent the living guidance of the Spirit by which the facts were apprehended in ever full meaning and scope. Uh, The prophets either mean here, church, the prophets of old before the apostles, or they mean Holy Spirit-inspired prophets who are tethered to God's word and who are rightly and accurately proclaiming this mystery of Christ according to the scriptures. The point is, the mystery here has been revealed. There's a key word here, though. Look back in your text. Look at verse... In verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's that word as there. So again, the point of this, church, is so that you will not be disheartened. And this is what Paul wants you and I to know. When we face moments of discouragement, when Christians suffer for gospel causes. And so he's saying, know the mystery of Christ, which, verse 5 here, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So one way to not lose heart and suffering is to know that Paul did not make this whole thing up. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery which is now made known in more clearer ways than it was before, this mystery was in a sense known previously. It just wasn't nearly as clear as it is now. That's what Paul is saying. And this is why it's important for you, dear Christian. Because when you're hiding in a cave in Afghanistan... When you know that unless the U.S. military or unless God miraculously, supernaturally intervenes in some way, if you're found out and likely you're going to die for your faith, but you're going to give the option to recant, you have to know that your faith is grounded in historical prophetic truth. Century by century, prophet by prophet, promise by promise. The mystery in a sense has been revealed before Christ came to earth. 
Just not in the clarity it is now. So we have to know, brothers and sisters, texts like Genesis 3.15. As some say, the first gospel message in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'm going to send someone through the line of Eve and he's going to kill you, Satan, and make you powerless. But in that process, you will injure him. And you keep going, Genesis 12, 3. You see more of this hints of what this mystery is. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, speaking to Abraham, in you All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. You keep going. Genesis 49.10. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is on his deathbed. And he's given these promises. He's he's given these prophecies to his 12 sons. And all, all the 12 sons have varying prophecies. But there's one that really sticks out. And that is his prophecy to Judah. And this is a portion of it. Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning he will rule. The ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the Jewish people. No, the obedience of the peoples. All nations will come through someone who comes from the line of Judah. We can go to lots of places. We've been in Isaiah this past year. So let's look at Isaiah 49, 6. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 56, 7. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Friends, Paul wants the Christians in Ephesians, God wants us to know this. That the mystery, in a sense, was made known. Now it is clear as day. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And all peoples will come to him. And they will be called the house of prayer for all peoples. In this man, God, Jesus Christ. Uh, Moving through in verse 6 of Ephesians 3. You have your concise definition for what the mystery is in the Bible. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers to the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They're fellow heirs, members of the same body, and they're partakers. It's not merely a Jewish religion, and in many ways it never has been a Jewish, a merely a Jewish religion. Uh, one thing that you can't quite see in the English there is in the Greek, you see this prefix su time and time again, or repeated three times in verse six. So fellow heirs is one word. Members of the same body is one word in Greek and partakers is one word. And they all have this prefix su. And it says Paul's like, is, is, is just hammering this home what he already did in the second half of chapter two, all nations are going to come under one King and his name is Jesus. And that's how the mystery has been revealed. That has been concealed for ages 
and ages past. The idea here is clear. All are one under Christ. There's no partiality, no superiority, no inferiority based on your ethnicity or your race. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came to save all sinners through his blood, which ransoms us, defends us against any accusation that in Christ we could be ever counted guilty. Paul says this. Of this grace, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Friends, know your Old Testament scriptures. They will anchor you when times get tough. When the pressure increases in our society and our culture, which it seemingly has been over the decades, know your Old Testament scriptures. Because what everything that Paul is saying is rooted in the foundation of the Old Testament scriptures. And it's like a beautiful tree that is blooming before our eyes. And we're seeing that Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises. And all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And it's hard to love and adore the New Testament scriptures unless you know where they came from. Unless you know what he's talking about. Unless you know the scripture references that he's pointing to. That he's, that, that he's using. Okay, thirdly. In order to not be disheartened and not lose heart. When you see or witness gospel suffering, know the worth of Christ, verses 8 to 12. Know the worth of Christ. Paul says that I am the very least of all the saints. Likely harkening back to his severe, murderous persecution of the Christians. He's saying, I don't deserve this at all. I am the least in a very, very matter of fact way. If anyone should be the proponent of telling people, come worship Jesus, it shouldn't be me because I used to try to round up Christians, kill them, and quench their message. But in spite of that grace of God entered my life, and now God has commissioned me to preach these unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then he gives this ultimate purpose statement here. So God has commissioned me. I am preaching the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's so much here. I am calling people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. In order that or so that. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Friends, God again is pulling back the curtain of the drama of this life. And he's showing us what he's doing here. Paul is proclaiming this message so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and in authorities in the heavenly places. Here is uh, the ultimate purpose of God in this mystery is his glory and particularly his glory as the heavenly places, the rulers and authorities, the heavenly beings, the good ones and the evil ones can look and behold 
the wonders of the grace of God. The drama of God's plan is being displayed when children of wrath and sons of disobedience become children of grace and have new hearts that don't follow him begrudgingly, but long to follow the decrees of God and then to make his decrees, his ways known among all people. You see, Jesus is worthy of all adoration. The worth of and the value of Christ does not depend on how many people value him or how much people value him. Jesus, despite how much you love him, how much you adore him, is of infinite value in and of himself. Because he is eternally, his riches never run out. Friends, this is being made known to you more and more day by day in Christ. And then Paul gives us the application for this right here. In verse 10, what do we do with this? These beautiful truths. Sorry, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. If you know the value of Jesus Christ, a natural application for your life will that be your own boldness to know that you have access to him anytime. Anytime you want, you have access to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We have confidence now because this is a plan that wasn't constructed by God as he saw evil beings overtaken, good beings. He, he knew all this from before the beginning of time, from eternity past, before you were born, before your parents were born, before the Taliban was even an idea, before these United States were formed, before all world wars, before Jesus was born of Mary, before all Greek philosophers, and before the creation of the world. This is his eternal plan, that his beauty, his manifold wisdom would be known where? In the church. To who? To the principalities, to the rulers. That we can't see. But what does that do to your troubled heart, dear Christian? To know that God is not merely concocting a plan as he sees his beloved children hiding in caves in Afghanistan. Friends, this can take a troubled, weary heart of a Christian. And it can have you stare adversity in the face and say, God has eternal purposes and he is realizing them through Christ of whom I am testifying of. That's what Paul says next in verse 12. In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Christian, pray bold prayers knowing that you have this objective access to God. It is not subjective. It does not depend on how you feel. But it is an objectively true statement to say that you have access to God through spirit. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 18 of Ephesians. For through him, for through Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is a true statement if you're in Christ. If you are blood-bought, if you are redeemed by Jesus Christ, you have access to the Father anytime you want. 
See, Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus has passed through the heavens. He was tempted as we are in every respect, though. And yet, Jesus never sinned. If you are here as, as, as not a Christian, maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe you're new to the scriptures. Friends, that's why I'm proclaiming this so passionately and boldly, because I was a sinner. I deserved God's wrath. I did not love the plan of God. I did not love Jesus. And all the while, I thought I was good. I thought I was good. And then a friend, when I was 15 and 16 year old, started faithfully sharing this gospel message with me. Then God's kindness, I realized that I was a sinner. It's as if it was my own Damascus Road experience. The light of the gospel pierced my darkened heart. And I had eyes to see and behold that Jesus is a Christ and I needed a savior. And Jesus says, my blood will cover your sins. For I've taken the wrath of God for you on the cross. If you're not yet a Christian, Jesus did not stay in the tomb for three days. On the third day, he rose from the grave. And then he ascended on high. And that's why, Christian, we have so much confidence now. Jesus is interceding before us and the Father. And he sits in the throne and he sees every Christian in every small way they suffer, in every hard way they suffer. He knows your pain. And so with confidence, we can draw near to this throne of grace. And it is in this throne of grace that we will receive mercy and find grace in our help, to help us in our time of need. Friends, know the worth of Christ. There could be a million sermons just in that point alone. Fourthly and lastly, know the glory of the church. That's right, the glory of the church. So verse 13 says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's really not the end that you would expect in this in this passage. If you and I were, were writing this, even as, as theologians, we'd probably say something like, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for God's glory or which is for Christ's glory. That would be a true statement. And in some ways, that's foundationally more of a bedrock truth for the Christian faith. You know, what is the chief end of man to enjoy God and glorify him forever? Yet here, Paul, in order to help Christians suffering or hearing about suffering, in order to help them, he says, I am suffering for your glory. We know how he's suffering. He's in prison. He's been before flogged. He's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by a snake. He's been stoned. Friends have betrayed him. And on top of all that, he's got this daily burden of caring for the churches. All this being done so that the Gentiles might glorify God. But yet he says this is for your glory. Uh, Friends, what precedes our glorification is being saved by Christ. But Paul doesn't say this is for your salvation. He says this is for your glorification, which is what our lives will culminate in if you are in Christ. We will be glorified with Christ. So the the glory of God, as John Piper defines it in one way, he says the glory of God is the infinite 
beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. It's taking his attributes and loving and enjoying and adoring and valuing all the attributes of God. So Paul says, I'm suffering for your glory, church. And we see the glory of the Christian. There's two things. There's the present glory and the future glory. In the present, Christians are starting to taste the immeasurable riches of Christ. We're tasting the salvation from wrath. We're tasting uh, the gifts of our blood-bought redemption, of justification, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the saints, the peace of God, the love of God. But this will all fully be realized on the last day. In a sense, we're sipping on the glory of God now. And on the last day, we're swimming in the glory of God. It will be all we know, all we see, all we behold will be the glory of God. Paul says, I'm doing this for you. So in a sense, when you're suffering, you can look inward a little bit. And you say, God, you're doing this for me. This is happening for my glorification. Romans 8, 17 to 18 makes this even more clear, talking about the eschaton, the last days of, of how this suffering will look, work for our glory. You see, in the Christian life, suffering uh, is a prelude to glory. All suffering. Here we go. Not just gospel suffering, but all suffering in the Christian life is a prelude to glory. So, Brother Ernie, your unexpected heart attack, brother, it's a prelude to the glory to come. If you've lost someone that you love dearly, in some ways God is working that. as It's a prelude to the glory to come. If you are suffering for the gospel, if a friend has betrayed you, if a family member has disowned you, that's a prelude to the glory to come. Romans 8, 17, 18 makes this so explicit and clear. Cling to these verses. We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light, momentary affliction. Now know who's writing this. A man who's been flogged, who's been beaten, who's been disowned, been stoned. This is what he calls his affliction. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, we're tasting of the immeasurable riches of Christ now. One day we'll be feasting on them without stop, unending, unceasing. And the reason that Paul can write, I'm working for your glory now, is because any glory that we have comes from the source of all glory himself, Jesus Christ. As we close, you see this in Revelation 4, 9 to 11. This is the kind of stuff that will help you persevere and not lose heart, dear, weary Christian. Pensive, doubting, fearful heart. This wonderful scene of heaven, in which we just sang about in our song, Is He Worthy? He says here, 
Whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, so just hold up. These elders are giving crowns a sign of glory. So they're wearing these glorious crowns and then they behold Jesus the Messiah. The Lamb of God for sinners slain. They look at him and the only thing they can do is take off their crowns of glory and cast them at his feet. Verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. All things, all plans from God our creator. We see somewhat clearly the mystery now, but one day we will behold this mystery. And any glory we have, any gift we've been given, we will cast at his feet because he's so glorious, so rich. And his riches will never run out. They are immeasurable. It reminds me of that song that our church sang last week, The Sands of Time. Our singing, the, the, one of the last verses says this, The bride, talking about the church, Eyes not her garments. The bride isn't saying, look at my awesome white dress. But her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not, uh, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Friends, beholding Jesus knowing that all things are working together for your good if you are in Christ and for your glory, which really is just an extension of his glory, that will help you not lose heart. So friends, don't minimize your suffering. Now, how there, many of us can't relate to those Christians hiding in, Afghan, in caves in Afghanistan. Now, I don't know that many of you ever will. That doesn't mean you need to minimize your own suffering. Christ cares about even your smallest of sufferings that you've encountered today. You've had difficulties in relationships, in parenting, in your marriage. You've had unmet desires. Christ is there and that's working for your glory because you're in Christ and he's seated on the throne. He's orchestrating all things for your good now and for his glory. So friends, in your counsel, Christians, Christians, as you counsel and give advice to one another, encourage one another, one on road, to be courageous in this. Be very careful of the subtle trap of victimhood. It is everywhere in our culture today. And it's hard because being a victim is a true thing. But in totally embracing victimhood, well, that only further hurts the victim, actually. It makes him powerless. It causes him to look inward and only inward, or if anything, outward at someone who victimized them. Christ is more wise than that. He calls you to identify what sin is, identified ways you've been hurt. Then he says, look at me, behold me. Friends, pray through the Psalms been so helped this week by praying through Psalm chapter 10. To let my honest desires and affections be before God as I ask him and plead with him to save Afghan Christians. 
and to not let the evil, the evil Taliban overcome and quench the good gospel work there. And friends, look for the glory that God is displaying in this church. So many things God is doing. Small ways. Adam Sievert getting here early, helping out our hospitality. Emily Stahl getting groceries for our sister Cynthia. People visiting Ernie and Diane. The Smithermans getting ready to go overseas to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to people who likely have never heard it. Look around to see the glorious things happening in this church. Not because we're awesome and innovative, but because God's word is at work by the power of his spirit. In conclusion, we don't know what will happen now to our Afghanistan brothers and sisters, and our, brother, our Afghan brothers and sisters, but we know their end is glory. And we know that God desires us to be courageous and not disheartened, even in light of difficult news. As John Newton says, all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. He's working all things together for his good, church, and for your glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, truly Jesus has immeasurable riches. We've experienced some of those today. We pray that in our last song, we would more fully, more clearly taste and, and behold his beauty. Cause our church to adore Jesus Christ. For those who are clinging to sin or for those who look at Jesus and don't see him as beautiful, maybe they see him just as a worldview or a ticket to heaven, oh Lord, we pray that you would demolish those thoughts and cause them to rise up to behold the beauties of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.